Welcome back, everyone, to the second session of our colloquium. However, uh, we are going to be moving things around a little bit. And I know this is a sharp crowd, so I know we can all handle it. Uh, but we are, are going to do what was originally scheduled as the third session uh, by Father Greg Peters, Catechesis According to the Rule of St. Benedict. So that's on your booklets on page 14. And then we are going to circle back around tomorrow morning to Jerry's talk on Cassian and then conclude tomorrow with Father Greg's talk. So it's, uh, I will turn it over to Father Greg, and he will give us catechesis according to the rule of St. Benedict. There's a few things that would have presumed knowledge of Jerry's lecture, but again, this is a catechesis crowd. This is the sharpest people I know, so we're all, we're all going to be great. Okay, Thank, please help me welcome Father Greg. Thank you. Thank you, Alex, uh, both for the invitation to be here and for your uh, introduction. Uh, yeah, the flight problems were with San Francisco. Um, so it took me eight hours to get here from Los Angeles. Uh, fortunately, I booked the earliest flight, so as it kept getting delayed, there was still time and time and time. Jerry has not been uh, as fortunate. So um, happy to, to step in and, 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 and go here this afternoon. Uh, and also, to, I, I know we're bantering back and forth with uh, Elizabeth uh, Jones. Uh, Elizabeth, I'm sure, has corrected me before in session back when she was a student so well and so subtly that I did not recognize <laughs> it as correction. And uh, her, these kind words between her and Alex about me, my wife would just be left wondering, who are we talking about? So um, my kids even more so. Well, catechesis according to the rule of Benedict. Oh, I should also just add to that, that introduction, um, I'm also a Benedictine oblate um, at St. Andrew's uh, Abbey in Valermo, California. Now, I became an oblate at uh, St. Vincent's Arch Abbey in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, because I was doing my PhD in Toronto, and that was the closest Benedictine uh, abbey. But um, So, uh, as, as an oblate, I, I live under the rule of Benedict uh, to some extent, um, so it's just a great opportunity for me to, to visit and revisit uh, the rule in this way. When Benedict of Nursia, who died in 604, wrote his now well-known monastic rule, he did so for a particular community of men living together on Monte Cassino, a mountain midway between Rome and Naples that is perhaps most famous because, of the, that, because the still extant monastery from the early 20th century was completely destroyed by Allied bombing on February 15, 1944. So that's what many of us know that monastery is by its ruins. It's the famous picture of the, the bombed-out monastery. Uh, but it's the monastery that Benedict wrote the rule for. Benedict was not writing the monastic rule of Western Christian monasticism, as is often thought and taught, but was writing to a specific community. Moreover, he was not creating the Benedictine order which is actually a late 19th century creation, in fact. He was merely organizing the monastic life of men called to a particular monastery at a particular time and in a particular place. As well, he was not even necessarily being all that original 
in that he took an anonymous monastic rule, which we now know, know is the rule of the master, and modified its contents. Sure, he added some new elements to his rule, but by and large, he was merely redacting and editing. The result of Benedict's genius, however, was a monastic rule that not only governed the community on Monte Cassino, but in time, and again, not because this was his plan, not because this was the way the rule was originally written, but in time, came to dominate the monastic landscape of Western Christianity. So much so that Benedict's vision of the monastic life is often synonymous with Latin, Western Christian monasticism in general. That is, when one says monk, the word monk, the hearer often immediately thinks of a Benedictine monk as opposed to a Cistercian or Carthusian monk, for example. So even in your own mental landscape, if you were someone were to say monk, and we could, we could capture that initial response, mental response to that word, I bet it's a person in a brown, dark brown or black habit, right? Not a person in a white habit with a brown scapula like a Cistercian. Yet, so, so the, the point is, is again, the rule is not, was not written to found a bunch of communities, to guide a bunch of communities, but it came to dominate so much so that monk just usually means Benedictine. Yet Benedict was merely one monk and a long line of monks who wrote monastic rules for particular communities. Prior to Benedict, there were monastic communities following rules that were, well, obviously not written by Benedict because they were before Benedict. Many of these rules have come down to us, and some have been lost. Though they often share much in common, each one tends to have unique elements as well. Again, monastic rules govern particular monastic communities, so they tend to reflect that reality. The time, the place, the environment, the culture, that's the reality they reflect, not an idealized vision of the monastic life. Monasticism has never been monolithic. It has always had various shades and contours that reflect its time period and or geographical location. As much as monastic historiography tends to flatten out monastic history, the reality is always much more nuanced and varied. So again, Anthony, or to say it differently, Anthony was not the first hermit. There were hermits before Anthony. Pacomius or Benedict were not the first Cenobitic monks. That is a flattening out and simplification, oversimplification of monastic history. Reality and the truth is much more nuanced. Benedict was born in the region of Nursia, located in central Italy, made famous a few years ago because of the earthquakes that ruined the local uh, monastery and cathedral. According to Gregory the Great, who died in 604 uh, and who wrote Benedict's life, Benedict was sent to Rome for his education. But seeing the grave vice of his classmates, he abandoned, quote, his literary studies. And leaving his family home and inheritance, Gregory the Great writes, he sought to please God alone. He went looking for a monastic habit so that he could leave a holy life. So, quick aside, contrary to Rod Dreher, Benedict went to college, found out there were frat parties, and that frat parties were more popular than the classroom. He didn't like that, so he became a monk. <laughs> that, I think, is the better story than the one Rod Dreher tells. Okay, back in. This led him, ultimately, Benedict, to a cave at Subiaco, because if you're going to be a monk, why not find a cave? 
right? And this cave, we are told, was a wild place about 40 miles from Rome. It's, uh, still there, beautiful monastery, Subiaco. Again, Gregory the Great tells us that on the way to Subiaco, Benedict met a monk named Romanus who clothed Benedict with the monastic habit. Over the next three years, Romanus brought Benedict food, lowering it to him in a basket with the assistance of a long rope. Well, in time, Benedict's holiness and virtue became well-known, leading others to emulate his way of life. A local monastery approached Benedict, asking him to become their superior. Though Benedict doubted if his lifestyle would align with those of the monks, he finally agreed to be their abbot. In time, Benedict's hesitation was proven accurate when, quote, the monks under his rule grew furious, furious, Gregory writes. It was hard for them to have to change their attitudes. After the monks attempted to poison Benedict, see, boring lives compared to monks, right? After the monks attempted to poison Benedict, he responded by leaving the monastery and returning to Subiaco. Doing this, we are told, with a calm face and a tranquil mind. The life of Gregory then goes on to state that Benedict founded some number of monasteries in the vicinity of Subiaco, though he was not the abbot of these monasteries, which were populated with sons of, quote, the pious and noble families of the city of Rome. Yet, due to ongoing difficulties, Benedict placed all the monasteries he built with their brothers under their superiors. Taking a few monks with him, he changed his place of residence. This led Benedict to move south, where he continued to perform miracles and where he eventually died. This monastery at Monte Cassino was his most famous monastery, and it was the catalyst that caused him to write his rule. So there's a couple things to notice in that narrative uh, that, contrary to what we just learned about the catechumenate and Jerry's comment about uh, that maybe the monastery retained the catechumenate during uh, even the era of Christendom, uh, the point is, though, is Benedict was clothed just kind of on his way to become a monk. He didn't actually serve a novitiate, except the life tells us he then spent three years having food and stuff lower to him. So you wonder if Romanus wasn't teaching him or guiding him some way during those three years. So maybe he had a novitiate after he became uh, a monk, uh, which is a little out of order. But then again, monastic history is not a flattened out thing. So as mentioned before, Benedict's rule was written specifically for the community of monks at Monte Cassino. Composed of 73 chapters and largely dependent on the earlier rule of the master, Benedict's monastic legislation is characterized by humility, an insistence on balance between prayer and manual labor, and moderation. For Benedict, the monastery is a school for the Lord's service. Thus, Benedict strives to legislate nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. So I'm not going to indicate every time I'm reading a quotation from the rule. I'm just going to let that be quiet. Um, but that, when it sounds great, it's from the rule. Uh, when it doesn't, that's probably me. Furthermore, Benedict views his rule as written for beginners, assuming that those who desire greater discipline in the monastery will find it in the teachings of the Holy Fathers, the observance of which will lead him to the very heights of perfection. Now, those fathers that... Uh, Benedict was imagining were, uh, in particular, John Cashin, who, again, Jerry's second talk will address uh, to some greater extent, but also Basil of Caesarea, the great monastic legislator of Asia Minor. The basic structure of a monastery, according to Benedict, consists of the following. First, an abbot who stands in the place of Christ in the monastery, to whom the monks are obedient. 
Uh, Benedict wrote to a men's community. It's all masculine, so I'm just going to let his rule be masculine in this talk, though it was later adapted for women. Right? So there's an abbot who stands in place of Christ, and the monks are obedient to that abbot. That's the first thing that a monastery consists of. Second, the abbot is assisted in community leadership by a prior, he who is first after the abbot. Third, the main task of the monks is prayer, both private and obviously in community. Fourth, each monk spends some portion of each day engaged in manual labor. Five, in larger communities, there are deans who oversee groups of ten monks. Six, the monks sleep together in a common dormitory. Seventh, all the goods of the monastery are held in common. I believe this list is in the program, isn't it? Thank you, Alex. Uh, Eight, all the monks, except for the infirm and the young, follow the same diet and share the same style of clothing. And nine, the monastery is served by a number of named officials, such as the cellarer and the porter. The rule's noteworthiness is primarily displayed in Benedict's teaching on humility, obedience, and hospitality, concepts that run across the breadth of the rule and permeate the entire text. Benedict's teaching on humility is borrowed from the master. Oh, let me, before I say that, let me, so the point of that is to say there's these kind of nine mostly structural elements, right? It, it is a rule. It legislates organization. But then there's a spiritual teaching in the rule, right? And that's humility, obedience, and hospitality. They're connected, of course. Right? You, you don't have one without the other in, a, in, the, in the Benedictine monastery. But, uh, but mostly, I'm, that's the structural side. It's interesting. This is not the place to talk about that. So I'll talk more about the spiritual teaching of the rule. Benedict's teaching on humility is borrowed from the master, who in turn based it on John Cashin. In the rule, obedience is primarily an issue of humility. In the chapter entitled Obedience, Benedict says that the basic road to progress for the humble person, is through prompt obedience. Thus, there is an intimate connection between humility and obedience in the rule, inasmuch that to progress in his spiritual life, a monk must be both humble and obedient. There are two sides of the same coin. Humility for the monk comes by ascending the 12 steps of the ladder of humility. I believe they're in your, your, uh, the program as well. Step one, the monk keeps the fear of God before his eyes. Step two, a monk does not love his own will, nor takes delights in satisfying his desires. Step three, a monk submits out of love of God to his superior. Step four, if obedience to his superior becomes difficult, unfavorable, or unjust, a monk embraces suffering and does not seek to escape it. Step five, a monk does not hide private or public sinful thoughts or actions from his abbot, but willingly and humbly confesses them. Step six, a monk is content with low and menial treatment, regarding himself as a poor and worthless workman. Step seven, a monk believes and acknowledges that he is inferior to all other persons. Step eight, a monk only does that which is allowed by the rule of the monastery and the example of his superiors. Step nine, a monk remains silent unless asked a question. Step ten, a monk is not quick to laugh. Step eleven, a monk speaks gently without laughter. Seriously, with modesty, briefly, and reasonably, without raising his voice. Step 12, a monk is always humble, inwardly and outwardly, in his heart and actions. To the modern reader, some of these steps can seem incredibly harsh, too self-abasing to be of any real good. Modern readers tend to see in Benedict a self-effacement that rubs against established, wholesome psychological health. 
Our response to this simply ought to be that Benedict was writing at a different time. We know this, of course, but it is essential that this truth be borne in mind when reading the rule of Benedict. What we might view as cruel and psychologically unhealthy, Christians of the 6th century viewed as spiritual and necessary to grow in holiness. This difference of understanding and chronological distance must not lead us to reading the rule of Benedict poorly. So if you are reading any of those steps and you thought, oh, that sounds terrible not to laugh, great, historical distance, <laughs> different set of sensibilities, right? That, that can account for, for a lot of what we, what we see there. But the main thing is not to you know, refuse to read Benedict well because we're maybe put off by some of his uh, ideas of humility. Benedict's idea of humility was clearly one of ascending degrees. This would seem obvious from his use of the latter motif, but this image was primarily borrowed from the scriptures, for example, Genesis 28 with Jacob, and perhaps from other Christian literature. In subsequent Christian literature, we have lots of examples of the latter motif. The latter, John Climacus from the next century, Walter Hilton's Scale of Perfection, later in the late Middle Ages, etc., etc. Throughout the course of one's life in the monastery, one was to ascend this ladder of humility. The steps do not correspond directly to moments in the monk's life, but as a monk grew in his monastic and Christian maturity, he would presumably ascend higher on the ladder of humility. So in other words, they're not quite AA steps, where you can't go to the next one without doing the former one, nor do they indicate some sense that you have graduated beyond step five once you've gotten to step six. They're cumulative. So it also seems that Benedict did not think of these steps as sequential. That is, that once you master the first step, you move on to the next step, etc., etc. Rather, the steps are cumulative. The monk who has advanced to the fifth step is still practicing humility according to the first four steps. Benedict is not creating a 12-step program akin to Alcoholics Anonymous, where a step must be completed before a person is allowed to move to the next step. Rather, he is offering a fully formed theology of spirituality under the theme of humility. Once the monk has reached Benedict's last step, he has reached spiritual perfection. He is now pure of heart, to use John Cashin's language, or in the words of Benedict himself, quote, now therefore, after ascending all these steps of humility, the monk will quickly arrive at that perfect love of God, which cast out fear. Of course, more could be said, but time doesn't allow it. We could wonder if there is such a thing as Christian perfection. Uh, what does it mean to be pure of heart? But Alex didn't give us enough time for that. But before moving on, I would like to pause for a moment and look at this concept of Benedictine humility from a slightly different perspective. The location of Benedict's original cave at Subiaco is now a monastery. To reiterate, around 500, the year 500, Benedict moved there to live alone in a cave ostensibly escaping the worldliness of the city of Rome. According to Gregory the Great, Benedict was sent from, to Rome for a liberal education. But when he saw that some of his classmates were plunging into vice, he withdrew his foot, these are the words of Gregory, that he had just placed on the threshold of the world. So abandoning his literary studies and leaving his family home and inheritance, he sought to please God alone. So, accordingly, he settled in a cave, receiving his food, as I said, from another local ascetic who lowered it down to him in a basket tied to a rope. Now, though Benedict eventually left Subiaco for Monte Cassino, the current monastery traces its origins to the 12th century. So Benedict left the cave, but a monastery grew in its place, and the current one dates back to the 12th century. 
Because the monastery is literally built on the side of a cliff, its different elements are at various elevations. The larger upper church is where most visitors enter today. Using a set of stairs, one can then descend into the smaller lower church, which also grants one access to Benedict's original cave, what is known as the Holy Cave, the Sacro Specco. From there, one can take the holy stairs down to the lowest levels. The next lower level contains the Madonna Chapel, and just beyond that, a few more feet lower, there is a chapel that is used for the funeral of monks and the original crypt. Climbing down the holy stairs is quite an experience. I've done it several times. But it's mostly an experience because on either side of, on either side of the stairs, the walls are frescoed with vivid images. On your right, as you descend, there's an image of death on a horse who is either riding over a group of individuals who have already died, or it could be interpreted as he's riding over them and is killing them. Your focus is drawn to death's sword, which is striking down two noblemen mid-conversation. So you have death on a horse, riding over people, either killing them or trampling on dead bodies, but he's holding a sword, and he's striking down two noblemen who are just having a conversation. The message is clear. Death will find you, and perhaps even when you least expect it. The image on your left, as you descend the steps, that's on your right, the image on your left as you descend the steps is also a reminder. And remember, you're, you're descending towards the crypt where the monks are buried. So you're moving towards death. The image on your left as you descend the steps is also a reminder that regardless of your station in life, you will die and in time decompose. Here, there's a man, likely a monk, who is speaking at three persons dressed as nobles. You can't quite tell if he's talking to them or just at them. But the other three persons are dressed as nobles, noblemen. Two of the nobles are more interested in talking to one another, while only one is listening to the monk, it appears. Before the monk is an image of a deceased nobleman in three different stages of death. The first stage, he's like newly dead. The next stage are the early stages of decomposition. And the final stage, he's skeletal. By the way, I have pictures of this if you want to see them at the next break. I can, I can show you this. The fact that two of the three noblemen are not listening to the monastic preacher indicate that they likely think that they are above death, or at least that death will not visit them soon. The message here is similar to the one across the stairs. Everyone dies. No matter whether you are a monk or nobleman, death will find you. And it is important that one is spiritually ready when the time comes. In this sense, monastics and non-monastics are the same. They are inhabiting the same world with the same temptations and both need to make wise decisions, decisions so that in the end, and remember the end will come, they will be saved. In other words, death is the great equalizer. Now, if this is the case, that death is the great equalizer, then one must not live for the things of the world, but instead must live for God. In the words of Benedict, quote, In drawing up its regulations, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. The good of all concerned, however, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults and to safeguard love. Do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It is bound to be narrow at the outset. But as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, 
our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of love, never swerving from his instructions then, but faithfully observing his teaching in the monastery until death. We shall through patience share in the sufferings of Christ that we may deserve also to share in his kingdom. So again, notice the last line. Never swerving from his instructions then, but faithfully observing his teaching in the monastery when, until death, we shall through patience share in the sufferings of Christ that we may deserve also to share in his kingdom. Or even more succinctly, also quoting from the rule, live in fear of judgment day, uh, live in fear of judgment day and have a great horror of hell. Yearn for everlasting life with holy desire. Day by day, remind yourself that you are going to die. Given this inevitability of death, it behooves the Christian disciple to look beyond what is on offer in this world, in this life, and to live for eternity, to live for heaven. Thus, all of life becomes a ladder by which we climb to our heavenly home, not distracted by the things of the world that will only pass away, but for the things that are heavenly, to aim for the things that are heavenly. And for Benedict, this ladder by which we climb to God is one of humility. In essence, then, monastic catechesis, at least for Benedict, is growth in humility. Or to say it a bit differently, the telos, the end of monastic catechesis, is humility. For most of monastic history, the way a person entered a monastery was to simply show up and ask for admission. For example, in the 4th century Pacomian communities of Egypt, we are told that, quote, when someone comes to the door of the monastery wishing to renounce the world and be added to the number of the brothers, he shall not be free to enter. First, the father of the monastery shall be informed of his coming, He, the one who wants to enter, shall remain outside at the door for a few days and be taught the Lord's Prayer and as many psalms as he can learn. Carefully shall he make himself known. If they see he is ready for everything, then he shall be taught the rest of the monastic discipline. Then they shall strip him of his secular clothes and garb him in the monastic habit. So think, like, just I just noticed this in light of, of Jerry's talk, that, like, He's there, but one of the things they have to do is teach him the Lord's Prayer, right? And it's Pacomius is the fourth century, so I think this will illustrate well maybe Jerry's you know uh, words to us about Christendom and what happened to catechesis, right? Someone shows up, wants to join a monastery, and you have to teach them the Lord's Prayer, right? That's that seems strange, right? Like most people we think of who want to join a monastery, well that's the spiritually mature and advanced, and right? And here you've got a monastery saying. Nah, keep them outside for a few days. Make sure they know the Lord's Prayer. Don't let them in, right? So it's just interesting. Maybe, that's the, maybe that is Christendom, uh, the challenge of things already have entered into Christendom. That's Pacomius, 4th uh, century Egypt. But Benedict describes it this way to move back to 6th century Italy. If someone comes and keeps knocking at the door, Benedict writes, and if at the end of four or five days he has shown himself patient in bearing his harsh treatment and difficulty of entry and has persisted in his request that he should be allowed dinner and stay in the guest quarters for a few days. I love that. Is he still there? Yeah, another day. Still there? Yeah, give him another day. About five days later, like, all right, still there, let him come in. 
After that, Benedict continues, he should live in the novitiate, where the novices study, eat, and sleep. The novice should be clearly told all the hardships and difficulties that will lead him to God. So if he's lasted five days or so, and after a few days you move into the novitiate, and then your job in the novitiate initially is just to keep trying to scare him away, right? But if, if he's not driven away by these tales of hardships and difficulties, then now he can formally enter the monastery. If he stands firm for the next year, then he is able to join the community by taking vows. Again, in the words of Benedict, when he is to be received, he comes before the whole community in the oratory and promises stability, fidelity to the monastic life, and obedience. So again, if he, if he can't be driven away, he stays a year. That's the traditional novitiate. You stay a year, and then you can make your first vows. And in, and in Benedictine life, you vow stability, fidelity to monastic life, and obedience, not poverty, chastity, and obedience. Different set of vows. Though things are a bit different today, the root of monastic living is the same. A man or a woman desiring to follow their God-given calling and vocation enter a monastic community, is formed monastically in that community, takes vows to God as a member of that community, and, by God's grace, dies in that community. And with little variation, there are, in essence, two seasons of formation in the monastery. From entrance until the taking of permanent vows, and from the taking of permanent vows until death. In other words, monastic catechesis lasts a lifetime. For the monk, this lifetime of catechesis, this lifetime of ascending the ladder of humility, takes place in the monastic community, within the proverbial four walls of the monastery, under the authority of an abbot and the rule For the rest of us, however, it takes place within the church, within the proverbial four walls of the sanctuary, under the authority of the clergy, bishops, priests, and deacons, and the sacred rule, and the rule of sacred scripture. Nonetheless, there is much to learn from this Benedictine monastic tradition vis-a-vis catechesis, and I would like to conclude by organizing these thoughts around the aforementioned monastic vows, at least as they are expressed in the rule of Benedict, of stability Fidelity to monastic life and obedience. Thinking in terms that we are catechetical novices, if you will. So before I do that, let me just pause and and reiterate and reemphasize that again, what I'm saying is that for Benedict, you enter the community, which is in itself a bit of a difficult process. And then if you're allowed to take vows, you then have a lifelong catechetical task ahead of you, and that's to ascend the ladder of humility that he laid out. And the other thing I'm arguing is that, lest we think, well, great, for monks, but we're not monks in the room, at least I don't think any of you are monks. Well, if you read The Monkhood of All Believers, you're all monks, but, um, and you should read The Monkhood of All Believers, my book back there. So, um, but, but maybe you're not a vowed monk. So again, what I want to emphasize that, like, if a, if a person enters a monastic community, right, and, and takes vows, they are going to live in that community, especially if it's a traditional Benedictine community. They're going to live, and ultimately they're going to die in that community, within those four walls, following the rule of Benedict under the obedience of probably multiple abbots over the course of their lifetime, right? So when I go up to St. Andrews in Valiermo, uh, I almost always walk up to the cemetery, 
And, and now one of my former students is a monk at St. Andrews. So the cool thing is, you know, Brother John Baptist knows where he's going to get buried. I mean, assuming his monastic vocation endures, and it looks good so far. For us, that's, that's not the monastery, that's not the, the abbot, that's not the rule of Benedict, but for us, that's the church. That's the, the clergy, that's, that's our superiors, bishops, priests, and deacons, or whatever the equivalent might be in your own church structure if you're not Anglican. And we live under the rule of sacred scripture. And though I won't argue for it here, but argued for it at the Diocese of San Joaquin Clergy Conference last year, the Book of Common Prayer is also a rule that we are under. Happy to talk about that at a break or something. So let's return to stability, fidelity to monastic life and obedience and think of those to use as as tools to organize our own idea of what does it look like to be catechetical novices and to be formed under this thing called monastic catechesis. First, monastic catechesis depends on stability. 21st century people, like ourselves, are highly mobile people. We are constantly, quote, on the go, right? We vacation frequently and oftentimes far from home. And many of us will have multiple careers during our working lives that will cause us or even give us the opportunity to relocate. My wife, Christine, and I have lived in five states or provinces, because I did my PhD in Toronto. We've lived in five states or provinces in 25 years of marriage. But we have actually had 11 different addresses in those five states and provinces. And if if I included my life prior to meeting her, it would be even more because I was in the military. Unlike our farmer friends, Rick and Ann in Minnesota, who told us when we were moving away, come back and see us. We'll still be here because you can't move a farm. (laughs) We have lived and moved a lot, at least compared to Rick and Ann. We haven't moved as much as others have, but we've moved a lot. Though there are many different reasons, both good and bad, for modern mobility, for some it just boils down to one simple thing. They refuse to be or cannot remain still or stable. They become geographically discontent. In fact, having moved so much in our married life, I had grown accustomed to the thrill of the move, if you will. I enjoyed new scenery, the chance to find a new church and make new friends, etc., etc. So much so that in my third or fourth year teaching at Biola, which I think would have been during Elizabeth's time, um, there I was at Biola University in a tenure-track teaching position, which I had spent 12 years in school to make possible. I found myself growing antsy. I loved my job my students, my church. But I started to grow bored of the nearly endless sun and the great weather of Southern California. (laughs) I thought to myself, surely there are other cool places to live, right? For no reason other than my own instability, I began to think of moving. It made little sense. And in the end, I did not move. I'm now finishing up my 15th year at Biola. What kept me from really pursuing a new job and a new place was the Benedict concept of stability. Remember, I'm an oblate. For without exception, most Benedictine monks join, live, and die in the same place. 
The aforementioned student of mine, who is now in temporary vows at St. Andrews, already knows where he's going to be buried. In that monastic cemetery at the top of the hill. For most people in their mid-20s, he's in his mid-20s, such a thing sounds absurd. But stability roots us to a place and to particular communities. There is, of course, the community of my own immediate family, me, Christina, my 18-year-old son, Brendan, and my 14-year-old son, Nathaniel. Then there is the community of La Mirada, where we live. There is my work community at Biola, and my kids have their school communities at Biola University, where Brendan's a student, and La Mirada High School, where Nathaniel's a freshman. My wife runs a home daycare, and though it is made up of mostly little people, it is still a community. And of course, and perhaps most importantly, there is our community at Anglican Church of the Epiphany, where I serve as the rector. And it is in all of these communities, but perhaps most crucially in our home and at our parish, that we are catechized. As James K.A. Smith reminds us, we are liturgical beings, homo liturgicus, who do not only think, but first and foremost love through habituated practices. Because we are liturgical beings, we are going to be formed through liturgy, but as Jamie Smith asks, which liturgy? A secular cultural liturgy or a sacred Christian liturgy? He writes, for the liturgy is a heart and mind strategy, a pedagogy that trains us as disciples precisely by putting our bodies through a regimen of repeated practices that get hold of our heart and aim our love toward the kingdom of God. Therefore, if this is true, and I think it is, we must involve ourselves in Christian community precisely because we are going to be formed liturgically, and we should want that formation to be done in us by a Christian liturgy, not a cultural liturgy of materialism, for example. Or, to pick up on Rod Dreher's concern in the Benedict Option, a liturgy of modernity. I mean, fill in the blank for yourself, right? Think about your own life and which liturgy you tend to pick as the one that you want to form you. At the end of the day, says Jamie Smith, intentional Christian worship that includes the elements we've described above and that draws upon a holistic tradition of worship that activates the whole body is packed with formative power. That's his quote. But he mentions these elements described above. Well, if you've read the book, you probably remember them, but we're not looking at the book right now, so I'll tell you what they are. A call to worship... Being greeted by God and greeting others, singing, the reading of the law, confession and assurance of pardon, baptism, the creed, prayer, scripture and sermon, Eucharist, offering, and sending. Now, some of those elements could be gained outside the church, but the church is God's foremost community. They are available in monasteries for sure. But are these not just core practices of Christian liturgy, the core practices of the church of God? That is, is not the church itself, and in local parishes certainly, the place to practice these practices, to be formed in habituated love, or in Benedictine terms, to be catechized in humility? My answer is yes. That's what I'm going to pick, the church. I can get some of those things other places. I can go to work and people say, hey, Greg. I can fly to San Francisco so that Liz can say, Dr. Peters, and give me a really nice hug. 
or bump into Matt, who is also a student of mine, who's here at the, at the colloquium. I can get some of these things elsewhere, but why would I choose to get them elsewhere when the church is God's preferred community of formation? So if the answer to that is yes, that is that, that if the church is the place where God wants to, do, to form these core practices in us, then our stability to local Christian communities is what makes this catechesis possible. Now, I imagine all of you are good, active church attenders, but I spend my, the bulk of my days with 18 to 22-year-olds at a Christian university. I don't walk through the dorms on a Sunday morning because I know better than to walk through the dorms on a Sunday morning. I don't want to know who all is still in bed. Right? That's the challenge these days with 18 to 22-year-olds. They don't, they don't see a need for the church because their, their perceived needs are met elsewhere. Sometimes even by Biola. I love to sing good worship songs, but I, I have to go to chapels at Biola, so I can do that there. Why would I go to church? But again, 22-year-olds graduate, hopefully, <laughs> and move on. And that's, that's probably most of us. We've moved on. And so we need to think about what liturgy do I want to form me and, and where will I let that formation occur? But again, if we're going to follow Benedict, if we're going to adopt a monastic catechesis, the first thing we need to think about is our stability. And my suggestion is that it's our stability in local Christian communities that makes that kind of catechesis possible. Which also means it's the stability of staying put. But the grass isn't greener in another state. Which literally might be true. I put water on mine. The sun's always out. It's green grass. I'm from Virginia. I am from Virginia. I live in California, but I am from Virginia. I'm a proud Virginia. I'd move back there in a heartbeat if there was a reason to go. Right? There just isn't. Right? But, but again, I would still have to even check my spirit there. Okay, I think you get the point. We need to move on so we can finish and, and talk. So that's the first thing, Stability. The local parish, I think, is what offers that and keeps us rooted. Second, monastic catechesis requires fidelity. The phrase that is oftentimes translated fidelity to the monastic life in the rule of Benedict is this in Latin, conversatio morum suorum. According to the great but now late Benedictine scholar Terence Cardong, this is one of the more controverted terms in the rule. If it was conversio instead of conversatio, then it would simply mean conversion of one's behavior. But conversatio literally means way of life and is often used in Christian literature to translate the Greek word eschesis. And hence, conversatio can mean the ascetic life or even just be a replacement word for the monastic life itself. Perhaps the best way to think about it and to translate it is is as, quote, about his manner of life and moral conduct, or about his manner of life, that is to say, his moral conduct. So in addition to stability, monastic catechesis necessitates a proper way of life, especially in our moral lives. That is, to be catechized properly, we need to be morally upright people. Or, in more overt biblical terms, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace will be with you. So says the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Now, as you will rightly note, because you're sharp people, there is a bit of a catch-22 here. Knowing how to be and act moral is, in part at least, dependent on how well we've been catechized. Whereas we need to, to be and act morally to be catechized. In theological terms, this is called synergism, in the best sense of that word. We are people of faith because of what God alone has done. But we are holy moral people of faith because of what God has done and because of what we do as inspirited, capital S, enlightened, capital L, baptized Christians. In short, as one who has the Holy Spirit's indwelling, I am now a sufficiently moral person to be catechized. Or we could say because God's general grace and the creation of the world means that I am a graced person, even apart from Christ, I have a sufficient graced nature to be morally formed. As I move deeper into catechesis, further up the ladder of humility in Benedictine terms, the more moral I become, assuming I think and meditate on virtue and do it. Again, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians. So not only must I be stable, but I also need to be faithful to undergo a proper monastic catechesis. In more ecclesiological terms, monastic catechesis means I am a committed member and participant in a local parish, that's stability, and I partake fully in the sacramental life of the church. That's fidelity. Lastly, monastic catechesis entails obedience. I've already talked a lot about obedience in the monastery, including its difficult palatability to us modern folk. I remember one of the first times I ever read the Rule of Benedict, I thought, who would sign up for this? I didn't know any monks at the time. Now I know lots of monks. I know who signs up for it, right? But also, um, at Biola, we have the Institute for Spiritual Formation, and one of the professors there always asked students to read the Rule of Benedict as one of the classes. And almost to to a student, they are offended by the obedience as depicted in the rule of Benedict, which I think we should be. Anyway, well, we've talked a lot about obedience. We need to talk some more. Nonetheless, even it's hard to, to believe or it's difficult uh, teaching in the rule of Benedict, it is the last requirement in Benedict's catechetical trinity. We have to be obedient. We are, it seems safe to say, people of necessary obedience. For example... It is necessary that I arrive to work or school on time, because if I do not, then there will be negative consequences. Most of us of working age dutifully pay our taxes. Notice I said most of us of working age dutifully pay our taxes throughout the year and file a completed tax return by April 15th each year. I doubt most of us do this because we enjoy it, but because it is necessary to do so, as required by law. For those of us that drive we tend to stop when we see one of those hexagonal red signs marked stop, even if we are in a hurry. Why do we do this? Well, my guess is we want to be safe, and probably because we would also like to not get a ticket and or points in our license. 
but we stop nonetheless. For those of us who are married, we likely remain obedient to our marriage vows each and every day by loving our spouse as well and choosing not to commit adultery, for example. You get the picture, I think. We live under rule, law, obedience already. Most days, we are rather obedient men and women without even giving it much thought. But if we think about having to render obedience, we tend to get a bit bent out of shape. Why is that? Well, most simply put, and at the risk of oversimplification, free will. We love to be autonomous, independent people. Obedience subjects us to someone or something else, and most of us just do not like that. We are fallen, sinful human beings, after all. But as Christians, we are required to be obedient to God, obviously, but that does not happen in a vacuum. The arena for our obedience although it also happens to be our arena for disobedience, is the church. The rules of our obedience are found first and foremost in the sacred scriptures, but also in the creeds, confessions, and canons of the church. The people to whom we render obedience are the clergy and other God-appointed men and women. In the words of the Apostle Paul, quote, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thus, a properly Christ-shaped life is one of obedience. Simply stated, to be a Christian is to practice obedience. We may not love Benedict's version of absolute obedience to an abbot, even if he stands in the place of Christ. But obedience, qua obedience, is not an option for the Christian. So again, stability, we're active members of a parish. Fidelity, we engage in the life of that parish, including its catechetical life. And we become obedient people by living faithfully under the scriptures and those whom God has put over us. Though more could be said, of course, let me end by first offering a word to those in the room who are catechists. As mentioned previously, Benedict's rule envisions that formation or catechesis happens throughout all of life. No one has ever fully catechized this side of heavenly glory, for it is only then that we will see God face to face and know fully as we were told in 1 Corinthians 10. So catechist, always be involved as a catechumen in some form of proper and intentional catechesis. Take note of the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy. You then, my child, he writes, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Even those who teach others need to be strengthened, and that, at least in part, comes through one's own ongoing catechetical formation. Let me also offer a word to those pastors and or priests in the room. Do not think that catechesis ends at high school graduation or at the sacrament or sacramental of confirmation. Make sure your parish practices catechesis from cradle to the grave, just as monastic formation goes from entry to the monastery until death. And a final word to all of us. Let us, let others, 
catechize us, for we are not there yet. Let us, let others, catechize us, for we're not there yet. Despite our real or perceived spiritual maturity, we still have room to grow. Or as Benedict would say it, we are somewhere on the ladder of humility, likely moving back and forth between rungs. Some of us might be closer to the top than the bottom, but we are still in need of ongoing catechesis. Thus, let us listen carefully then to the instruction of others and attend to them with the ear of our heart. Thank you. Great. I'll invite our uh, respondents up at this point, and we'll follow a similar format as last time, where they'll, uh, these three will get the conversation started for us, and then you'll have time to ask uh, a few questions, either for the respondents or for Father Greg. So. I'm sure you'll mention him tomorrow, but Martin Thornton comes out in big terms. I was I was thinking about um, as I was listening to you speak about the uh, Benedict's word gyrovags, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a word we might benefit from using um, to say that there's something off about Christians that float from place to place, um, even if they stay in the same house, floating from church to church to church to church to church, um, and how we might think about um, more often telling people to go back to the church they came from. Um, it's just a thought. Yeah. That's all I had. I don't know. <laughs> I so, I so Everyone knows the gyro vagues from the rule mm-hmm. of Benedict. They're just the monks that bounce the around. The, yeah, <laughs> bounce around from the... From house to house, staying a few days, taking advantage of the hospitality, and then leaving, going on to the next community. So, the Joneses have to have a moment of mer- hard marital decision making. So. Yeah, who's going to crack down the hardest? That's yeah. what I'm wondering. Uh, this is this is wonderful material again. So grateful for it. Um, the, the a number of things stood out to me. Um, I think your your continual point about the the fact that we are um, that we need catechesis from cradle to grave is uh, it's not intuitive to, to most Christians that I meet today, even as we've tried to institute a, a, catech, a catechumenate here. The first thing people say is, oh, that's great. So when those people get baptized, you know, we'll get those people baptized, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's kind of like, well, we've all graduated on beyond that. And, and uh, I, I, I guess I've, we've been trying to cultivate, and I, I wonder how to do this better, how to cultivate a culture in which... Um, catechesis is normalized from from cradle to grave, practically speaking, mm-hmm. in a church. And uh, one way that we've tried to do it is when we introduce the catechumenate, we never introduce it as like, here's this thing for all you over there. We always try to say, we're the first people that actually need this. So we're like signing up because we need to be in it. Um, and I think that's like, I think it's echoing the same sort of thing, that we that we need this like deep, long formation straight to the grave. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this might seem like a random question, but it's a real question. Um, 
So a few, so in catechesis at Eucharist, we've been looking a little bit at the role of Benedict um, and some of the specific roles in Benedict's role. And yourself as an oblate, I was wondering if you could give us um, your personal favorite and your personal least favorite yeah. rule that you live under as an oblate. Oh, that's 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 a good question. Someone taught you well, um, <laughs> Doctor Peters. <laughs> I work in a I work in a program where we ask questions. We we do we don't lecture. We just ask questions, and the students talk. Um, so good questions. Well, I mean, I think I you know said in my talk like. Um, so I, I mentioned in passing I was in the Navy, uh, well, in the military. I was in the Navy. Um, so uh, some people say, oh, you know, like, wow, you, you, you get so much done in your life. Is that kind of focus and discipline because you were in the military? I didn't find the military all that hard, actually. I think it's because I was just wired to, to just obey <laughs> and to do. And actually in the military, if you just do and get it right, no one bothers you. So it's the easiest way to go through. But... Uh, so, but st- that stability piece, so the obedience doesn't bother me. Um, the long view of fidelity to the monastic life doesn't bother me. Uh, the, the submission part and the obedience, like nothing really bothers me there, even when I have to modify it for my own life. But I do think for me, it's that stability. Um, and I mean, like, I, I don't want to oversell my own personal narrative as, uh, you know, instructive for everyone, but I mean, we our experiences tend to tap into you know, other people's experiences. But I mean, like, it would make no sense, no sense, you know, three or four years into a tenure-track university position uh, with two young kids uh, and a wife. And she, my wife's from Pennsylvania, so we moved to the other side of the country for work. You know, it made no sense to want to just pack up and what's next. So that stability piece is still one of the hardest things I struggle with. Um, so, so one of the things like we do just to kind of illustrate uh, that it, it's one of the hardest, but it's it's at the same time my favorite. So we decided, okay, we live in Southern California, and you know, if if you if you live in a place like San Francisco, like many of you do, or if you live in like Los Angeles, we say, where are you from? And you say, L.A. <laughs> wow, what? You know, like. That's eight times bigger than my state. Yes, I know. And, um, you know, how do you live there, all that commuting? Well, what we did to take maybe some of the edge off of this wanderlust, well, mine, I don't think it was Christina's, was we started living small. So I live across the street from the university on purpose. But I don't walk to work because that would take me seven minutes to get to my office. So I bike. So it takes me two minutes. (laughs) So I can cut my commute down. Ten minutes a day, five days a week, I almost have an hour of my life back. Boom. So, uh, but we live small. We shop in La Mirada on purpose. You know, because there, I voted a few years ago for a 1% sales tax increase just in La Mirada because I thought La Miradans should fix the roads in La Mirada, not other people. Mostly because I'm not interested in fixing your roads wherever you live. So, um, you know, like, I want my taxes to benefit, you know, where I live. But, you know, but... And people are like, why would you vote for that? I'm like, because I live in La Mirada. That's my place of stability, right, is my home, which is on a street in La Mirada, California. So we try to live small. So it was the biggest challenge of me to finally be able to settle down. You know, I mean, I moved around for school, for grad school, two master's degrees, a doctorate. That's a lot of moving around the military. So finally saying, like, 
no, I'm going to stay put because the rule of Benedict is an oblate. I need to do that. And, I mean, all the other things, too, like have a good job. <laughs> I like it, etc. But then, like, really flourishing in that stability came about when we started living small. And I think I see that in monasteries when you just think to yourself, like, aren't you bored of this place? Like, I mean, like, in any, in like not every monastery is as beautiful as another, right? But they decided to be in that monastery. But then you... You, you hang around with them long enough, with monks long enough, and you see the way they live so locally in their communities. And so the stability piece, I think, Elizabeth, was the hardest, but also uh, it, it's also the one that, that I love the most. So then a follow-up question. Sure. Um, yes, you taught us well to ask questions. Um, <laughs> a follow-up question. Um, so are you saying that maybe we should pay attention to what grates against us the most in the rule? Um, and maybe that is like there's a secret joy something in there. If, yeah, if we well, and, and not just the rule. I mean, I think like what... So if, if as Christians, if our primary monastery is the church, not to the exclusion of the home, right? I mentioned that a lot. You know, a lot of our formation happens there, of course. Um, I will warn you, I will never prioritize the family over the church. And my kids know that. And, and, and I'm not paying for their therapy one day. That's on them. So, um, you know, like, or, I mean, sorry, I should have said that in front of Elizabeth. But, uh, but, I mean, the point is, is my kids know that we sacrifice things, which means they've had to sacrifice things without wanting to necessarily because of their age for the sake of the church. And so I think not just in the rule, but like those community, like the community of the church that we live in, the rule that we live under, what grates us in those things as well. And I, I think the best solution to those things when we find them, when they, when they manifest themselves, is to lean into them. That's what I do, because that's what I think the monks taught me. Right? What do you do when that brother eats too loudly right across the table? Are we recording all this? It doesn't matter. My son's never going to listen to this, so probably. I can't be at the breakfast table if my one son is eating a banana. <laughs> It drives me nuts. Monks deal with that. I don't have to deal with that every day. Monks deal with that every day because they follow this rhythm. They're sitting there like, Brother Peter, why is he chew so loud? But you know what? What most monks do, they don't ask the abbot for permission to go eat somewhere else. They lean into it. I mean, I literally have met monks that say, no, so I moved next to him. Like I, I just leaned into it. And in time, I didn't notice it anymore. Or... I learned more about who he was, and it didn't matter that he did that anymore. So, I, I, again, that, that might be a way that to, for us to think of monastic catechesis is like, think of monks, think of how they live, think of our church and communities as being equivalent to that, and then like the way in which a monk would have to lean into it, we would live, lean into that as well. I, I think something that I love about St. Benedict's uh, vows um, are that they speak so deeply and uh, in contrast to what particularly San Francisco culture lives by. I think about stability, fidelity, and obedience. Like All three of those are anathema to, to, to our society here because they all intrude on personal autonomy, uh, which I think is the great idol of our, of, our, of our setting here, at least, and maybe of American culture. But, um, but there's, no, there's no world in which... Uh, there's no way that which most people in San Francisco can imagine a stability in the way that, that Benedict talks about it without an entire change at the center of their world. Uh, the world would have, their whole center of gravity, as you, that language was used last time, would have to be 
become Christ, to imagine the stability that, that would cause them to suffer and sacrifice that way. And similarly, fidelity, but also obedience. To obedience speaks to authority. And if there's anything that we're allergic to as Americans, it's authority. Because we threw out the king to get this thing going, you know. <laughs> so it's like uh, that's deep in our, in our DNA, and we're still working that out. And yeah. I, I think that Christianity has largely accommodated that same kind of throw the king out mentality. We're very very flat in our understanding. And so we don't have a place for the goodness of, of authority. Like, mm-hmm. what is the goodness of authority? Sure. Yeah, and I think this is where, um, you know, just to follow up on that is, like, um, stability, I, I think, leads the vows in Benedict intentionally. Like, there will be no fidelity, right, or obedience if there's no stability. You just won't be here long enough. <laughs> like, oh, you're leaving? Okay. Right? And I think that also contributes to American culture is, like, we, we leave, we're, we're leavers because if you if you don't like your job, and I'm not just I mean this might not even just be boredom, but I mean like oh the new boss I don't like it you know you you just I'll just go do this somewhere else or something like that right I mean just perpetually so I think it all begins with that stability, but if we think about catechesis, I mean part of this was in the early church they just weren't as mobile they I mean they were they were barely mobile compared to us, um, but again like that that catechesis could happen in part because they were stable, right? I mean, you, you say your catechumen program runs for eight months? Actually, it's changed. It runs for 12 weeks. Okay. We have to go, like, okay. But I mean, like, okay, 12 weeks? I mean, I, I can say that to half of my parishioners, and I can, like, you should do this. How long will it run? 12 weeks. And I can see their, their wheels spinning going, how do I get out of this right now? <laughs> 12 weeks? That's like... I can't, I wouldn't commit to a dinner Thursday if it was Monday, you know, much less 12 weeks. And so, yeah, I mean, it ha- you know, this isn't, this isn't just for those with the means, we might move to a different state. That, that's how big we've, you know, rejected stability. But it, it manifests itself much more subtly in our, in our parishes, you know, in, in our actual day-to-day interactions. I think a comment that I'd make on that is that um, a reading in the rule... Uh, that I took to heart in the parish was to do what Benedict says the abbot should do, which is to meet with the visitors directly, mm-hmm. to eat with them, to eat with them even to the neglect of the brothers. Yep. Um, and so I started doing things like saying, for for the year of this catechesis process with all of our newcomers that come in in August and that are going to be there for the year, um, I'm completely devoted to them and I try to meet with all of them within a few weeks of that first visit and um, we have this big welcome dinner we have two big welcome dinners and and it's just all to say like um, I'm your pastor for all this time uh, it's 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 kind of a I, I often have read the rule and thought what would keep a monk or an or a novice there outside of the the vision that they're getting of Christ through the abbot. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's got to be compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something I've really tried to put in practice and, and it's, and it's largely been effective, you know, in terms of how mm-hmm. we retain new people in our church and, and, um, and retain them through this catechesis process. Um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about Benedict and, and the, and the, just simply the idea of fatherhood that's, throughout the rule. Um, and uh, one of my favorite writers on the rule, Esther DeWall, just says, 
it's got to be listen, my son. It can't be listen, my child. <laughs> it's got to be listen, my son, because it's the words of a father to a son. And, and um, there's so much power in uh, the exercise of spiritual fatherhood within the church. And um, I'm, I'm coming as I, as I get older to recognize, you know, I, I need to be that for, for a group of men in our parish. Um, and that's been really exciting, actually. Um, they they don't have that in their lives, and I didn't. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. Lee and I pastor parishes that are largely can be made up of university uh, students, or at least that rhythm of life. So even if you know you might know you you'll have them for most of the year, maybe eight months, but not the four of the summer, maybe. But then you also think like, oh, they're sophomores, I'm probably only going to have them a couple more years, and they're probably going to leave. Um, and in our area, students tend to stay a year or two for sure. After that, if they haven't gotten a pretty good job, they just can't afford to stay. I mean, they get tired of living with 11 other people, uh, and, you know, to afford. <laughs> Matt, did you do that when you lived in La Mirada? No, okay. Um, so, um, but, but, but again, I think, like, for those maybe who aren't in a university context, I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not being cruel to the parish. I was less formed a dozen years ago when I was thinking about leaving Biola seriously was, you know, it, it, it was the rule. It was my Benedictine oblation that kept me there. I loved my parish. And in hindsight, I thought, why wasn't the rector? Like, why? I mean, he didn't know what I was thinking, but like, why hadn't the rector instilled in me, like, this parish is a great reason to stay. But, you know what I mean? Like, like, this is your family, your home, and of course you'll find another one if you have to relocate. But like, but and that's I guess what I'm trying to get at with that stability that we can create in our churches, um, which I think catechesis just has to start with there. I mean, you just cannot run a lifelong catechetical <laughs> formation program. Not 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 a program as in like we programmed it, but you know, you can't be engaged in that that godly work um, if you haven't convince people to stick around um, for the long for the long haul haul and I'm not and I mean this would be like you know they always say the test of real faithfulness in the parish is when the priest leaves and they hire a new one right what was the ASA before and after right but man imagine a world in which like wait Lee's moving on <laughs> whatever you know like God bless him Christ Church is our community and that's not Father Lee well, and that seems to me to be part of the idea in Benedict is that the abbot can change. Not that Lee's moving on. Well, the abbot can change because the rule is set, right? right? Exactly. So, like, you know, one of the things that I really try to do is say, like, whatever the parish revolves around, it can't revolve around me. It's got to revolve around Christ. It's got to revolve around a, a dedication to a kind of culture and a, and a, and a, and a set of convictions that we have. And... Um, and in fact, I, I think everybody, every pastor should try to work themselves out of a job, essentially. Um, you know, to the point where they're just not really necessary, but everyone kind of thinks, but of course you're staying. <laughs> you know, and that's, there's, there's, there's joy in that, mm-hmm. big time joy in that. And so, um, yeah, I, I echo that big, in a big way. Um, and then the pastor leaves because he's called, not because he just wants to change. If, right? Because yeah, those of us so they, in yeah. church ministry, you know that that's, of course, what happens. Like, man, I'm so tired of these unruly people. Maybe I could find some new ones. At least be closer to the mountains or something like that. Got some questions over here? I'm going to go here. 
Thank you. I was thinking about stability as well, which we were lingering on, and I'm wondering, um, I have been here now for almost 15 years, and I feel like there are probably many more than three, but I'll point out three kind of macro uh, cultural liturgies that that uh, run roughshod over stability. Housing costs, number one. Trans-global companies that move people all over the place, number two. And uh, third, just in the tech field, I mean, your your goal is to start something so you can sell it within a couple years, so your horizon is quick. And I'm just wondering, how do we, as ministers in, in a place like this, cultivate stability when the macro liturgy is pulling everyone away all the time? Yeah, Ryan, Elizabeth, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm just a university professor. No. Um, man, that, that's, that's a great, you know, contextual question. Um, and again, monastic rules were written for particular contexts, particular places. Uh, not everyone's the same, right? The habit just can't be the... I mean, Benedict even says that in the rule in places, right? The material should be what can be uh, procured conveniently and locally and cheaply, right? So we don't need to... Everything doesn't have to come from the Benedictine habit store in Rome or something like that. So... Um, you know, and of course, temperature will dictate how thick it will be and those kinds of things. I think what we have to do uh, is accept that that's the way things can, will be in this area with a certain segment of the population. It may be a predominantly large segment of the population. Um, I think it's unrealistic to think that well-formed Christian men and women will say, I'm not going to work for that trans-global company because they will move me and I want to be stable. Like, I just think that's it's not the reality of employment, it's not the reality of job skill, and it's not even the reality of vocational calling, um, probably from God. Um, there are Benedictines that don't make vows to a community. Um, the 14th century... Um, reform movement. Um, oh my God! Um, it, uh, Santa Maria Maggiore is the, the original monastery. Father Luigi would kill me because he is—he is this. Um, oh my goodness! Okay, it will come to me eventually. They—they—they they, they make vows of stability to the order, um, uh, not a particular monastery. So, so maybe there's a model already in monastic history that we could look at and say, and I, I mean that in one sense we would just be describing the church, like your baptismal vows don't need to be, like okay now that I'm here, let, I mean that's, I realize there are church, I've been baptized twice, I realize there's churches that that think like that, but my point is to say like, you know maybe there's a way to think about, um, like monastically there's an example of like nope your your vows make you a Christian. So you, 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 your stability is to, obviously, that, that calling on your life by God, even though it might have to get worked out in different communities, that would be a different way to do it. But, but those, uh, man, and I am just absolutely flabbergasted, I cannot recall. Um, <laughs> this is terrible. This is not to boast, but I actually have a, I did too, I have a doctorate from the Benedictine University in Rome as well, and he was my dissertation director there, so this is what <laughs> makes it terrible. I mean, I got his name, I just can't think of the order. So, um, but see, they have, to com- they have to compensate for that by they send all novices to the mother house at Santa Maria Maggiore. 
so that they're getting a uniform formation. So that, what would that look like for the church? Well, all of Etten's. I want to answer that in, in, one, in one significant way, which is that um, and I, I, hope I, I hope I don't sound like I'm sitting my own horn, but, but, but the decision in the Anglican Church in North America was to build a common catechism that forms people according to a common vision for our life that has a common rule built into it, which is very simple. It's just regular communion. It's the daily office, and uh, oh, now I'm killing myself by forgetting the other one. Uh, but 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 it's. Uh, does anyone know? Golly, yeah, out, out of out of Thornton, now. yeah, yeah, out of Martin Thornton. What, what, is, what is Thornton's rule? Oh, it's and 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 private devotion. Yeah, it's, yeah. I was gonna say it's the so, it's asceticism. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I I keep seeing is that when when people are formed in that way in our parish and they move right, they go to another parish and they just. Live that rule. I mean, it's it's actually fairly simple. So the source of stability is not geographic. The source of stability is found in this um, in this way of life, and and I think that's that's something that can be can be brought to bear, um, especially in the sense that um, the language I find really helpful surrounding a rule is that most Christians don't know which way's up. We can we can just be honest about that and say, well, what's up? So so in, in catechesis, I teach like, well, what happens if you try to grow tomatoes without a trellis? Anybody try to grow tomatoes without a trellis? I mean, come on, come on, you're dead. They, we live in San they Francisco. Sit on the ground, <laughs> on the roof. They sit on the ground and they rot <laughs> because they don't go up. And the trellis tells the plant which way up is. Um, and a rule functions in a similar way, whether it's a personal rule of life or a common rule of life or, or whatever it may be. And so uh, that seems to be part of the aimlessness is not just this kind of mobility. It's that nobody's taught me how to live a stable life uh, according to a rule. And so people, whether they're moving from town to town, they're still kind of spiritually gyrovagues. They're jumping from... I hate to say it, but like $10 devotional you can buy at Walmart to another, right? Um, and the new one comes out and they jump right all over it and they go, and, and there's no stability. Um, and so, you know, it seems to me that practices like the daily office and regular communion and, and private devotions that you can, that you can fit into that works really, works really well. I'm going to say something extremely morbid, um, but I'm quoting the rule of Benedict, which uh, Dr. Peters quoted earlier. Um, live in fear of judgment day, live in horror of hell. And then I think there's some stuff about heaven after that, but he moved on too quickly and I couldn't write it down. But um, I, and this is convictional for me too, because I don't think that I live in fear of judgment day. I think I live in anticipation of my toddler's bedtime you know like I think like like I'm caught up in this eminence and um but I wonder if he really lived in fear of judgment day lived in fear of the horror of hell lived for heaven if all of a sudden our priorities would be different and stability would take on a different context and a different meaning because we'd be thinking okay yeah I'm stable for another 20 years and I'm sure back then the monks lived 
not as long right. as we live, you know, bubonic plague, middle ages. But yeah, like, it, like, <laughs> like you know, stability was, yeah, I'm, I'm stable now to form my soul for this eter- eternality of stability in heaven. And But we think, oh, man, like, retirement, and we think, oh, okay, advancing to my next, you know, um, move and my next job. You know, like, like just all, all the things that, that we're trying to attain for this life, quite honestly. I don't think that we really do live for heaven. I think we don't think in terms of that. And, like, how do I change the internality of my soul for the eternality of what I'm living for? We don't, we just don't yeah. think that way. Another another thought just occurs to me to, to your question, but in every congregation you'll have sort of stayers. People are just going to be around for a long, long time. They're in for the long haul. And it seems to me that if you if you can really get that group of people to live according to a rule and to live really <laughs> stable lives and to have a commitment to one another, um, that that's a witness to those that are passing through. Similar question uh, about stability. Um, what I hear f- from what you've shared, um, Greg, is in part that it sounds like by virtue of being part of a local church, we're embracing stability. And I like that because it feels accessible and simple. Um, but I also, having led a community for 15 years, I want something with more teeth than that. I want some specific ways to teach stability and the value of it through the church. In other words, I don't want it to just be about staying. And so you've started to talk about it, and you mentioned at the end, what if the, what if the priest invited you to consider the value of the church as a reason to stay? But I wonder if you could speak to are there additional stabilizing practices that you think the church could lead people into beyond just the simple reality of being a local community, which you're invited to be a part of? I think that's beautiful, and we're in a mobile culture, so that in and of itself is is a challenge, but I'm looking for some more more stabilizing practices. Wow, that's a great question. Um, And before I answer that, I'm going to correct myself because we're recording this, but... Uh, they're the Olivetans because the mother house is Monte Oliveto, not Santa Maria Maggiore, which is a church in Rome. So, we are, uh, we are going to report you yes, for yeah, getting this wrong. I'm very embarrassed by that. So when I see Luigi in a few weeks, I will apologize to him. Um, okay, so this is, I, I think, this, this might sound counterintuitive and this might not even really be what you're getting at. But, but here, here's my answer to that. At the end of the day, I am just a simple, simple person from Virginia. And I think to myself, if someone came to me with the bigger question of like, you know, how, how am I to exercise my stability in this parish? Or, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, Father Greg. Maybe I say something in a sermon that catches their attention. And I, I say to people all the time, like, so, you know, as Anglicans, for the, for the Anglican priests in the room, those rectors, you know, you... Once a year, everyone wants to know what's your average Sunday attendance, right? So we dutifully keep our record book so we can report our ASA. The curse, maybe not for Lee, because I think you're ad orientum. Uh, we're ad populum most of the time. So I, I get to look out every Sunday and just see who's not in church. And I'm not even trying to. I just do. I get to see who's not in church. 
First thing is, I would just say to people, like, you know where stability starts? Here. Every week. Every week. So, I, I'm, I, I don't even think church should be once a week. I mean, I, 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 I would be a daily communicant if I could. I want church every day. Now, I'm a priest, so I could confect the Eucharist for myself every day, but I'm not going to do that, right? Um, but the point is, I'd be a daily communicant. So, I mean, to me, it's not even a weekly thing, but let's just go with the biblical example of Sunday as the holy day, right? Um, I mean, that's where stability starts, and that's tangible. It really is tangible. Like, great, I'm, I'm glad you have these questions. I noticed you weren't here the past two weeks. Well, we know what happens in, in, in most North American communities. Like, oh, there, there they go. I just saw the back of their head for the last time. Um, so I want to be sensitive to all that, though the truth should always win out over you know, the budget. But, um, so I think some, like, things like that. And then at, at Epiphany, we have a potluck after every service, minus two Sundays a year, three maybe. Now, we, we meet in the evening, 5 o'clock on Sundays, because of our rental situation. Seven years at this now, but I don't think I could budge the, the people who've been there all seven years. They, don't, they want 5 o'clock. They don't want the morning. They, they've, we've gotten into this great thing. So we have a potluck. So every week, we can literally walk up to a visitor and say, want to come eat with us? But the thing is, is like, that's not why we do it. We're doing it because like, we eat together. And it's just an extension now of, of being together in the, in the Eucharistic space to just go down and break bread together that way. So, I mean, I, I would just say, like, come to church. Stay and talk to your fa- church family. Be known by them. Um, want to know them. Right? This introverted, extroverted business, like, whatever. You know, like, I mean... You're human. God made other humans. The humans make up the church. Deal with it. I don't know what to say. Like, I mean, I just don't buy this, like, people wear me out. I'm like, yeah, people wear me out too. Like, honestly, but, like, how could I not? I mean, my family wears me. And my kids wear me out, you know, but I can't, like, well, I, got, I mean, I could send them on a vacation and stay home or something like that. But, I mean, like, we just, that's not, my point is, you get my point, is, like, go, I would say go small. Go small. It, it's that daily, and, and then, like, like, not only were you here, but, like, ask people, like, have you been praying the daily office? Like, if you're going to get together with coffee, don't talk about what the president of the United States said the other night. Sorry, I didn't want to trigger. Um, you know, don't talk about that. Like, talk about the daily office readings. If you know there's someone who prays the office, even if they pray occasionally, you say, oh, I've been able to pray the office this week. And that's not a, you know, like, I just want to talk to you about the readings, like, isn't that passage on Dinah really strange in Genesis? That is so sad and heartbreaking. That was one of the lectionary readings from this week, you know? Is that, is that like getting at, is that tangible? Yeah. I'm allergic to programs, so I will do nothing that's programmatic in my church. And all someone has to do is if it looks, smells like a program, it's done. It won't, I mean, they come to me and they can tell halfway through, like, okay, that was great. <laughs> we'll just go finish our meal now, you know? Like, yeah, because it, it can't be you know, ramping it up. You know, every year in La Mirada, we get the postcard from a particular church, and we'll get it soon because Easter's going to come, and it's about the peep party. You know what peeps are? The marshmallow sugar things that'll kill you? 
the peep party. They give away a car. But there's churches in Dallas that give away like 10 cars, I hear, on a, something like a Easter Sunday morning. No. I mean, that, what is, <laughs> that is Super not, no. <laughs> not going to form people, catechize people, or keep them around. Matter of fact, they'll take that car and drive right off. <laughs> By the Father, way, I meant, wait, real quick, I mentioned peeps in a sermon last year. I didn't name the church, but I used this illustration. Woke up the next morning at, at the vigil. Woke up the next morning, my yard had a bunch of peeps on skewers stuck in my grass. Like a hundred of them. That's a well catechized congregation right there. Father, right. I have a quick word. I just, uh, I think this is such an important question. It goes along with Bart's question as well, too. And I feel like um, it's a little bit of a chicken or egg problem for churches because um, people have a hard time staying places where they cannot imagine the next season of their life there. So if you're a single person, you can't see people to marry. You're not going to stay there. It's difficult. Mm. If you're a married person and you're going to have children, you don't see families or yeah. children's ministries or catechetical tools. If you're an old person, we had some. We had somebody recently. I told me, I can. I'm so grateful to be at Eucharist because this is the first time I've been able to imagine dying in a community. Mm. And like we're mostly a young, younger community. It like really touched me that they thought they could imagine the last season of their life with our community. Yeah. So I think mm. that you have to be able to imagine. Yeah. That and it's people that help incarnate that imagination. So I think that's that's part of it. And it's again, it's a chicken or egg. How do you get there without people to to to? to do, and it's the vow stability that helps us do that. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is that some of the language we use around here is, a lot is we want to thicken up the the experience uh, or the the culture of our church enough that people feel there's actually an identity here. Um, and if because if it's just a supplemental thing to my life, I have a life and I like this church that I kind of go to once in a while. There's not much depth. there's not much yeah. like depth in that, you know. You people actually crave a community they can give themselves to they, deep down, even though that's a very anti-American way to think. I think self, we want to self-donate to something. It's just hard to self-donate to something you imagine everyone else is taking from. So you want to know what kind of community can I give to that everyone else is also giving themselves to, and that's a pretty rare experience at church, to be honest, in, in my experience. So it's a call to us as leaders to to cultivate that kind of a thick experience of of belonging and love and self-donation so that people can imagine spending their whole life in a place. Can I just real quick, I'll add to that. I know you probably want to end us, leave, you picked up the microphone. But I think related to that is, I just want to say, like, but, but there are ways, and you're not denying this, right? There are ways to still be church for those people even though they don't see other kids or something like that. I mean, I think that's where you have to provide them with that really meaningful and genuine connection to where they say, well, my kids might not have one-to-one peers, but they're going to have these these youth or college kids as models to look up to. That's a great reason to stay. And I mean, I remember one Sunday in our first year of existence, I looked up and I, there was like one of our youngest members, our oldest member in her like late 80s at the time, some college kids, a couple of parents, all at this one table at the potluck. And I just looked at that table and I thought, I couldn't have orchestrated that. That just that happens. In the, in the space. I mean, one of the things I think in talking to monks through the years and going on retreats and Benedictine monasteries that I've really come to understand is that there's no anxiety about what tomorrow's going to be like. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, it's going to be like today. Mm-hmm. And what's it going to be like next week? Like this. The only thing that changes is the weather, right? <laughs> and, and, and maybe the times that you get up, right? Because according to the rule, you're supposed to kind of time it according to the sun and right. things like that. Anyway, uh, but, I mean, American churches, you never know what you're going to get in a lot of them on Sunday mornings. Like, 
what wacky thing is going to be said, who's going to be there, who's going to be giving the sermon. Like, I mean, I, we don't know. And, and uh, you know, I, to me it's been very gratifying that I can come to things like this and spend the whole weekend and, and tell the parish like three, four days in advance, like, oh, by the way, I'm going to San Francisco. And people are like, good for you. That's great. You know, and they're not like, what are we going to do? Like, it's, it's because, quite frankly, like, I'm, I'm really not essential to what happens on a Sunday morning there. Like, I could be there. I can also not be there, right? Because because it's so predict the worship is so predictable, the preaching is very much like we preach as a team, we work together. Like what's going to happen there is very stable. And and the other thing that I would say too is like I'm really gratified when I see kids mixing in with other families in the service, right? Where they like feel totally fine with like saying, "I want to sit with my friend." They're 3 or 4. They just float to a different view. It's like Yes, or or when um, you know grandparents, empty nesters, they don't even think twice about little kids joining them. Um, that's a huge victory, um, and it and it says to it says especially to families, you know, that this is a place where we're really gonna thrive. And uh, so I, I had lunch with a guy just this past week. He just said we were thinking about moving to Houston, and the thing we keep coming back to is like we think that our family's going to thrive here and it's largely about the church. And and it's like there's nothing special. There are no programs, right? None. <laughs> None. What they do have is they've got families in the church that live right around their house and they've got people they can turn to and they know that when they have a baby they're not going to have to cook for 6 weeks. Um so because they know what to expect. It's it's all very, very predictable. Um, I think that's a victory when, when you know that. One more just thing is our churches have become so pastor-centric that it's the personality of the pastor that matters above all else. And that is borne out in the amount of time that they spend preaching. Very charismatic, very uh, winsome. But we build cults of personality. And I think one of the contributions of the of the Benedictine rule is, and why it's so successful, or has been historically successful, is it does not build a cult of personality at all, because it's built according to a rule, and that's a very different way of operating. the 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 abbot disappears, the monks all disappear, and and they feel the stability. And I'm not sure that the people in our churches feel stability on the whole. Let's give our speakers another round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.